Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. All right, welcome back. We start today covering developmental coordination disorder. There is a DCD CPG, so you know what that means. You got to know it. Developmental coordination disorder, or DCD, is a chronic condition involving impairment in gross motor, postural, and or fine motor performance that affects a child's ability to perform the skilled movements necessary for daily living, including performance of academic and self-care tasks. It's important to note that DCD is not attributable to a known neurologic or medical disorder. The etiology of DCD remains poorly understood. There's no specific pathological process or single neuroanatomic site that's been definitively associated with DCD. There are many theories, including that diffuse areas of the brain may be affected, resulting in the variable expression of DCD. Subcortical areas like the thalamus may also play a role, and the cerebellum and basal ganglia are implicated due to a strong association between motor, attention, and perceptual processes. Meta-analysis of research strongly suggests cerebellum involvement due to the presentation of things like poor predictive modeling and correction, difficulties with rhythmic timing, poor executive function, difficulty with posture and gait, difficulty with catching and interceptive skills, and problems with visual and tactile processing. There are also implications in the posterior parietal cortex, as evidenced by motor imagery deficits in children with DCD. They seem to have impaired feed-forward models and difficulties in generating efferent copies of motor commands through feed-forward models. Mirror neurons in the posterior parietal cortex may work in concert with internal models in the cerebellum through extensive neural projections between those two brain structures to code and update movement. Due to their presentation, like Sheila was just talking about, a lot of these kids get missed or deemed as just clumsy. So it's really important to be aware of DCD and aware of their presentation. So then that way, these kids don't just get swept under the rug. So when we're looking at DCD, we can say that it is present when motor impairment and or motor skill delay significantly impacts a child's ability to perform age-appropriate complex motor activities and adequate opportunities for experience and practice have been provided 
and no other explanation can be offered for the motor impairment. That's important. Diagnosis can only be made by a physician because it's critical to rule out any other underlying neurological or medical reason for the observed motor impairment. There are really four distinct criteria that the physician's going to be looking at. One, the learning and performance of coordinated motor skills are not what would be expected based on the child's age and experiences and opportunities for the motor skill development. Two, the motor difficulties have a significant impact on self-care activities, academic achievement, leisure, and play. Three, the difficulties begin early in development. And four, the observed motor challenges are not better explained by intellectual or visual impairment or other neurological conditions that impact movement abilities. So it's really important to note that without intervention, children with DCD do not quote, grow out of it, strong evidence shows that these motor problems will persist into adulthood. Children with DCD are at risk for developing serious, negative social, physical, emotional, behavioral, and mental health consequences. Children with DCD engage in less vigorous play, and they spend more time away from the playground, and they're less likely to be physically fit or participate in voluntary motor activity which is predisposing them to an inactive lifestyle and the, all the long-term risks for obesity and poor cardiovascular health. We need to identify children early. This is what Sarah was saying, because we need to facilitate the education of teachers and parents about how to make tasks easier and how to ensure that activities are matched to the children's capabilities and prevent secondary health issues and academic failure. So let's look at developmental coordination disorder using our favorite ICF model. First, we can look at the body function and structure level. Primary impairments at this level are going to include sensory and perceptual deficits. These are things like deficiencies in kinesthetic processing and poor proprioceptive function, impairments in visual spatial processing, difficulty determining object size and position, limited ability to use visual rehearsal strategies, and deficits with visual memory. Visual feedback is managed differently and is processed more slowly. They have a heavy reliance on visual feedback to guide task performance, and they lack automation in movement patterns, and they remain at an early stage of motor learning for much longer. So the next one would be motor deficits. So children with DCD move awkwardly and slowly with a rigid kind of jerky movement quality. Usually you see poor balance, especially with things like single leg stance and difficulty maintaining postures. You might see decreased muscle tone and maybe even some soft neurological signs. We're also gonna see motor control deficits things like inappropriate and ineffective neuromuscular strategies, both in muscle activation and in sequencing. You might see increased muscle co-contraction. You might also see them fix or stabilize joints during task performance, leading to a lack of movement fluency. You might see kind of a stiff, awkward, and clumsy appearance. I know this came up a lot. With reaching tasks, you'll see a different neuromuscular strategy than typically developing peers, which contributing to a slower and more variable movement and reaction times, as well as movement inaccuracy. You might see gait 
differences that have been suggested as due to movement variability, variations in movement speed, timing, and force across different tasks, and difficulties with error detection and movement correction during execution of motor skills that are complex and involve spatial uncertainty. Last, you'll see motor learning deficits. So things like a limited movement repertoire, lacking both adaptability and flexibility in motor behavior. They may achieve motor milestones appropriately, but will have difficulty learning new motor skills because they fail to see the similarities between motor tasks and they're unable to transfer skills from one activity to a closely related other activity. They also have a lot of difficulty generalizing. Children with DCD rely predominantly on visual information as if they were still in the very early stages of motor learning. They often repeat tasks the same way, regardless if they were successful or not with that task. I'm not sure if Sheila's going to talk about this later on, but MedBridge had some really great videos for DCD. And one thing that they talked about a lot, especially with the motor learning deficits, is that the kids really benefited from talking through the steps of the task prior to or after an unsuccessful attempt, which helped with their motor learning abilities. Due to these primary impairments, we will then see secondary impairments. Secondary impairments are things like physical difficulties. They lack energy and they are easy to fatigue, decrease strength, power, and endurance. And these are all precursors for participation restrictions. They also have secondary impairments in social, emotional, and behavioral areas. They may be quiet and withdrawn at school. They may avoid schoolwork and show off-task behaviors. Conversely, they may also act out in class as well. Next, we're going to look at activity limitations. Children with DCD have the greatest difficulty with skills that must be taught, especially skills requiring accuracy and refined hand-eye coordination that require constant monitoring and feedback. We see fine motor difficulties in self-care skills like snaps, zippers, buttons, tying shoelaces, opening snack containers, and managing juice boxes. They also may have difficulty sequencing steps for shoe tying. When children with DCD make a mistake in one step of the sequence, they may start over or admit different steps in the sequence. They also have academic limitations. Things like difficulty with printing and handwriting to the point where their written work is illegible with inconsistent sizing. They are going to require more support and assistance from those around them to complete motor-based self-care and academic tasks at home and school. When it comes to gross motor skills, we may see difficulties with the flexibility and adaptability required for these activities due to poor balance and poor postural control. Some examples include... They may show delays each time they learn a novel skill, like riding a push toy, learning to ride a bike, or pumping a swing. They are usually poorly coordinated with running, skipping, hopping, and jumping. You may also see poor hand-eye coordination and difficulty with throwing, catching, and kicking. They don't do well judging force or timing of their limbs when they're trying to do some of these more coordinated movements. Children with DCD have the most difficulty with motor activities that require constant changes in body position or adaptation to changes in the environment. Also, difficulty with activities that require coordinated use of both sides of the body. With participation, 
all of these motor difficulties lead to a reduction of interest in physical activities, causing the child to avoid motor and sports activities from an early age. This compounds the difficulty they already have. Additionally, with fewer opportunities for social interaction, they often appear not to have learned the intuitive rules of social situations. So let's move on to the role of the physical therapist in developmental coordination disorder. First, we must be able to identify it. DCD must be considered theoretically present since birth. Children differ with respect to the apparent age of onset because the developmental progression will vary depending on the environment and task demands placed on the child in the early years. But usually by the time they're at school age, that's when we'll start to see more of these functional difficulties. Earlier, we may see some initial limitations in preschool years, such as slower development or temperamental differences, but this is probably going to be more of a hindsight. It is often very evident in the school setting as the structured demands of the classroom and expectations of increasingly precise motor skills and shorter timeframes for performance stress out a child with DCD. Unfortunately, DCD is usually recognized once academic failure occurs, and it's rarely identified before the age of five. And sometimes poor handwriting is often the first sign. When determining if we're looking at DCD, we need to have a good history. Asking questions about motor development and medical background like pregnancy, delivery, and past and current health status. We need to know about previous musculoskeletal and neuromuscular examinations because remember, those may exclude a diagnosis of DCD. The types of questions we may ask in a differential diagnosis might be, is there evidence of increased or fluctuating tone in something like CP? Are there delays more global in nature rather than just the motor domain? These questions may center around coordination skills specifically. Have the difficulties been present since an early age? Are the motor concerns appearing to worsen over time? Or has there been a loss of previously acquired skills, something like muscular dystrophy might show? Children with DCD often cannot imitate body postures or follow two or three step commands. Frequent demonstration and actual physical assistance may be needed to accomplish items on a standardized test. So speaking of standardized testing, what are some things we might use? Well, there is a parent report screening tool specifically for DCD called the Developmental Coordination Disorder Questionnaire, the DCDQ-07. This is for children 5 to 15 and describes tasks that are often a concern with children with motor impairment. There's also a teacher checklist option called the Movement Assessment Battery for Children Checklist. This test is lengthy and time-consuming to complete with poor sensitivity, meaning it's missing a lot of kids with motor concerns. There is also a children's activity scale for teachers and a motor observation scale for teachers. There's also a self-report option called the children's self-perceptions of adequacy in and predilectation for physical activity scale, and that's for older children. In terms of norm reference tests and measures, there's no widely accepted standard to identify gross motor delay in children with DCD and discriminating criteria for DCD is that motor coordination is markedly below expected levels for the child's chronological age. Currently, diagnosis of DCD is not recommended for children under five, 
but it is important to identify early motor skill delays and those at risk for DCD to have continued monitoring. The Peabody Developmental Motor Scales is an appropriate choice to monitor children at risk for DCD in this younger age group. The Movement Assessment Battery for Children is for school-age children and is a good option for DCD. When performance on the MABC2 indicates a risk for DCD, the child should be monitored and reevaluated for progression in the development of motor skill. Obviously, diagnosis of DCD is not within the scope of PTs, but our evaluation can provide useful information to a child's physician regarding criteria A and B of the diagnostic criteria, which are A, significant delay in motor coordination, and B, the motor impairment must interfere with academics, self-care, leisure, and play. Let's talk a little bit about intervention within the DCD population. Direct intervention approaches are directed towards remediating impairment, reducing activity limitations, and or improving participation. In the past, our focus was more of a bottom-up approach, which means we were addressing movement problems by emphasizing the building of foundational skills, but recent comprehensive systematic reviews of these approaches have found them to produce minimal change in functional outcomes. So we're moving on with the top-down approach we should be using. This means that intervention must be contextually based and meaningful. We need to emphasize the role of the cognitive process in the learning of new movement skills and interventions must be task specific with cognitive components. I would definitely star that. It is important to consider the motor learning difficulties common with DCD, such as the decreased ability to transfer and generalize skills and learn from past performance. Interventions that directly target the transfer and generalization of new skills and that emphasize motor learning will be the most successful. So let's talk about a few of those techniques. Techniques that foster motor learning include providing verbal instructions, providing opportunities for visual or observational learning, physically demonstrating or modeling movement sequences, helping children learn strategies for managing feedback and organizing their bodies so they can attend to the most important environmental cues. Children with DCD need frequent practice, practice in variable settings, and consistent provision of feedback. It is also helpful to create practice opportunities in a variety of environmental settings so that each repetition of the action goal becomes a new problem-solving opportunity. An important concept with PT intervention as a whole, including children with DCD, is task-specific approach. This is direct teaching of a functional skill in appropriate environments with the intended goal of reducing activity limitations and increasing participation. Children can explore a variety of solutions to motor problems, and the therapist can guide the child in choosing which of these different ways of performing represents the most efficient, optimal way for them individually and in a specific environment. The therapist can do this by being directive, providing verbal instructions and visual prompts, or physical assistance by guiding and directing movement so the child can appreciate the feel of efficient movement. Neuromotor training is one example of task-specific approaches, and it emphasizes components of motor learning such as verbal feedback and variable practice. 
Moving on to more cognitive approaches, which can help children develop cognitive strategies, acquire tasks, and generalize learning of one skill to the next. Children with DCD have poor declarative knowledge, meaning they lack knowledge of how to approach a task, how to determine what is required for the tasks, and how to develop strategies to use when learning and performing the task. This is important, I think. Cognitive interventions stress the importance of child learning to monitor performance and use self-evaluation. The Cognitive Orientation to Daily Occupational Performance, the co-op, is a cognitive approach and it guides children in discovering verbally-based strategies that help them problem-solve in new movement situations. This child needs to select, apply, evaluate, and monitor task-specific cognitive strategies with an emphasis on facilitating transfer and generalization of the newly learned strategies. Seems pretty appropriate for DCD, right? In order for us to evaluate our effect, we need tools for goal setting and measuring intervention effectiveness. Some of these tools include the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. This can be used for both goal setting and outcome measures. We also have the Perceived Efficacy and Goal Setting System, the PEGS, which is more appropriate for goal setting and younger children. A big favorite is the goal attainment scaling. This is becoming a go-to for a rehabilitation outcome measure with regard to the evaluation of individualized client outcomes and programs. The GAS is scored on five possible levels for a specific functional attainment focused on levels of activity and or participation, not on primary impairments. Another option is the school function assessment, which is good participation measure for children with DCD. The SFA is a great tool because remember, the child's deficits need to interfere with academics, self-care, leisure, and play to be considered DCD. The SFA measures all of these things within the child's school environment. When it comes to DCD, education is paramount. We need to educate the family and the child, school personnel, and any other people that are involved in the care of that child. We need to provide guidance in terms of information about the disorder, its impact on functional activities, and additional resources tailored to the child and family-specific needs. Children may need daily environmental modifications and task adaptations for improved performance and motor learning. We need to help family and school understand the child's strengths and limitations. Another important area is consultation regarding physical activity. These children need to increase their participation levels, and we need to help provide strategies for the school and families to outline appropriate leisure activities that will be the most successful for the children with DCD. These strategies can be used to encourage children with DCD to make progress within their own range of abilities, to foster self-esteem, and to promote the value of physical fitness for long-term health and wellness. We need to match tasks that fit the needs of individual children. MATCH is an acronym to remember for DCD. MATCH. You modify the task. You alter expectations. You teach strategies. You change the environment and you help by understanding. When physical activities are taught to children with DCD, emphasis should always be placed on encouraging fun, effort, and participation rather than proficiency. 
Something to think about. There are two types of motor behavior. You have basic motor behavior, and these are things like early milestones, sitting, crawling, grasping. They appear to develop relatively spontaneously in these children without any teaching. Then we have skills to be learned. Those are things like catching or kicking a ball, playing baseball. Children with DCD experience particular difficulty with the skills that require greater precision, continuous adaptability, and eye-hand coordination. So when recommending sports and leisure activities for children with DCD, the type of task as well as the degree of teaching involved need to be taken into account. Activities like swimming, skating, skiing, and cycling require some initial teaching of the skill, which may be a little bit challenging for the child, but because these sports contain a sequence of movements that are very repetitive, and these activities do not require constant monitoring of feedback during performance, children with DCD can become very successful with these activities. Additionally, these are really good lifestyle activities that the child can participate in throughout their whole life. This was a whole lot of really useful and helpful information, Sheila. We definitely recommend going through the DCD CPG as well because it reiterates a lot of this information and is all clear and concise in the one document. Next, we're moving on to chapter 18, children with motor and intellectual disabilities. This chapter is pretty general, so we're going to take you through only what we felt were the most pertinent things. The American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, the AAIDD, defines intellectual disability as being characterized by significant limitations in both intellectual functioning and in adapted behavior as expressed in conceptual, social, and practical adaptive skills originating before the age of 18. Some examples of disorders that may have an intellectual disability include cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, fragile X syndrome, Angelman syndrome, cry Duchenne syndrome, cytomegalovirus, Hurler syndrome, Leishman syndrome, Prader-Willi syndrome, Rett syndrome, and Williams syndrome. There is a great chart in Campbell that details each of these disorders. The APTA also has resources called clinical summaries. It's on their main APTA.org website. Obviously, it has some for disorders outside of pediatrics, but it does have a clinical summary for Down syndrome. It's very long, but very, very useful. There's also a couple more pediatric-specific clinical summaries. Just off the top, I'm looking right now, and I see brachial plexus. I see cerebral palsy. So there's definitely, not that you guys really want another resource to look at, but these were really, really easy to read. And I see there's one for autism spectrum, which isn't covered a lot in the book. So I think that that's a really good one. And then they have one for spina bifida, myelomeningocele. So that's probably a really good one to kind of take a peek at. Again, I'm kind of getting off topic here. So we're going to get back to topics. But um, remember to check that out, apta.org. And it's under clinical summaries. Now that Sheila brings us up again, these were really helpful. 
we were able to kind of just copy and paste them into a document so we could print them out. But they were definitely really helpful to read. They were packed with information. We can make a Instagram post or an Instagram story about this and give you guys the link so you guys can search these as well. So back to topic. Children with intellectual disabilities are at high risk for motor impairments. Children who may have motor impairments that restrict or prevent exploration of their environments may be at risk for secondary delays in domains not primarily affected, such as cognition. It is suggested that independent mobility is an organizer of psychological changes in typically developing infants. Self-produced locomotion has suggested to have an effect on spatial cognitive performance in typical children. Children with intellectual disabilities have also been shown to have learning impairments. Campbell has a bunch of suggestions for outcome measures that you can use for infants, children, participation, activity, and body structures and function. Refer to Campbell for a detailed explanation of these outcome measures. Remember, outcome measures are going to be a huge part of this exam. So you really have to figure out a way to get them into a spreadsheet and start studying these early and often. You want to make sure that you're familiar with the large list of these outcome measures because a lot of the outcome measures you'll see will continue to pop up as you go through the content. So if you're familiar with it from a previous topic that you've studied, you'll remember it once it comes up later in your studying as well. Definitely. As far as interventions go, the book states that intervention based on environmental assessment and occurring in natural environments is far more likely to result in improved abilities to participate in everyday activities and in age-appropriate life roles than intervention that takes place in an isolated or clinical setting is based on a normal development sequence or focuses primarily on identification of impairments such as range of motion, postural responses, or retention of reflexes. Communication is also something for the PT to incorporate into their treatment session as well. Power mobility is something that can be addressed early on in order to promote self-produced locomotion. There that is again, they talk about self-produced locomotion a lot in the MedBridge videos in PCS Advantage and in Campbell. Positioning, such as in a wheelchair, can influence interaction with physical and social environments, as well as communication and opportunities of communication. As physical therapists, we should also be supporting participation of the child in the school environment and eventually transitioning into the community, home, and work settings. Transitioning is really, really important to think about because even though we are pediatric physical therapists, our kids are eventually going to grow up and age out of school-based therapy or pediatric outpatient clinics. So we need to be familiar with what transition to adulthood actually looks like. We're going to talk a little more about this later on in our episodes, and we'll also hopefully talk about it when we talk about school-based. 
definitely don't skimp on things like that in the book. I know sometimes it's easy to breeze over the transition to adulthood stuff because it just feels less important. But I think it's definitely something that comes up frequently and it is not something I would just breeze over. I was also going to say, based on we were talking about positioning in wheelchairs and being upright, that is also a thing that came up a lot in our studying. And a lot of the most current research is really talking a lot about getting kids up and eye level and moving and having independent mobility from an early stage if possible, because that really is something that drives cognitive development as well. Other teaching and learning considerations include instruction in natural environments, behavioral programming as necessary, and promoting communication development. When evaluating outcomes, goal attainment scaling and the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure are two useful tools. These are two things that Sheila talked about in her DCB topic, as well as single subject research methods. When the child transitions into adulthood, team members should be able to enable their student to function meaningfully and as independently as possible in their current and possible future environments. Self-determination is an important quality to have when transitioning into adulthood. Students who demonstrate self-determination were more likely to be employed and earn more per hour than those who did not possess the quality as significantly. There are also different types of supported employment that are not detailed in the book that should be looked at while studying. This definitely came up during our studying, and I remember on practice exams, we had some questions that asked us, here's a child with a specific diagnosis. They are starting to age out of their school program and want to look into getting a job. What are some feasible types of jobs for this specific student or the specific child? Again, like Sheila said, this is not something to skimp on because our children are going to age out and become adults. And it is a really important part of being a pediatric physical therapist is working on transition with these students and with these families and finding these feasible job placements for them as they age. And I do want to say, I think the supportive employment stuff is there. I think there's an APTA fact sheet on that. Um, if I'm not mistaken, and it might be discussed as well at the end of the clinical summary, but I definitely know that there's a fact sheet on that. So the information is there. We're going to hopefully get to that with fact sheet Fridays, but just make sure you're thinking about all those things and not ignoring the transition to adulthood content. That is still something that a pediatric therapist needs to be aware of an expert pediatric physical therapist. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.